Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. What do I say now? Oh yeah, (laughs) it's a great point, John. Thank you. How is this going to work now? In each episode of this show, we talk about a notable film score. Having finished with the AFI's list of their top 25 scores, we're now randomly assigning scores to ourselves. And uh, this time around, the luck of the draw gave us the... 2014 Mindbender Outer Space Epic Interstellar with a score by Hans Zimmer. Interstellar was written by Jonathan and Christopher Nolan, was produced by Emma Thomas, Christopher Nolan, and Linda Obst, and it was directed by Christopher Nolan. Andy, uh, tell us about Interstellar. Interstellar is in the vein of movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey or Solaris or Contact in that it is about voyaging to the great vast beyond of outer space and finding something about the soul or something. Oh, hey, contact. Matthew McConaughey was also in that. Well, he's in this movie as astronaut Cooper, who winds up doing the interstellar voyaging. Anne Hathaway as his astronaut scientist colleague. Jessica Chastain as the adult version of his daughter Murph. And Michael Caine as an astrophysicist who leads the team at NASA behind the mission. Basically, the planet Earth is becoming uninhabitable and the human race needs to find a new home. So Cooper and company go off on the last-ditch mission through a wormhole to another galaxy to try to find a new home planet for humanity. He ends up hanging out near a black hole which messes with his timeline. And does he make it home? Well, sort of, but can you ever really go home again? <laughs> yeah, is it good enough? I know. I feel like I, I don't want to get to the day when I say good enough and you say, honestly, no. <laughs> that, that isn't good enough. That's not a good summary of this movie. It's good enough, Andy. All right. It's good enough. Okay. Uh, so you said you liked this movie, but I bet you hadn't seen it since it came out. No, that's not true. I saw it once on an airplane between then and now. Oh, so you've kept up with Interstellar. All right. I was about to ask you, did it hold up to your memory? Was it the same as you remembered? Whatever. But your memory is probably pretty good if you saw it on a plane. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Five years ago. Yeah. How did it hold up, John? Do you still like it? I still like this movie. What did you think of the movie? I was eager to find out what you thought of this movie. I liked it. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I liked it okay. Yeah, it's pretty much uh, it's pretty much what I thought you were going to say. Can I say that I liked it without really liking it? Is that a thing? <laughs> you can say it. <laughs> I liked, uh, I think I said this in another one. I like that it exists and I got to watch it. Okay, what didn't you like? Um, I didn't dislike, but I felt, um, the first time I watched it, I felt like I was sort of squinting like, what are you doing? Where is this going? What's <laughs> What's the point of this? And then having seen it the second time, I was watching it kind of thinking like, I see, you thought that was the point of this. All right. <laughs> so that was kind of where my mood was. Look, like I said last time, I, I'm willing to go along for these kind of rides. I like the big stories about big space and rocket ships and stuff. I've always liked rocket ships. So I kind of liked all of that stuff. I mean... Special effects look great. They look like they're in outer space. Sure. There's kooky, heady sci-fi stuff in this that's fun to think about and fun to watch. What does the fifth dimension look like? All of that stuff is fun, and uh, I enjoyed that. 
it's very long, as you said, yeah. and it has kind of uh, yeah epic pretensions that I just felt a little lost some of the time. Okay, so let me lay out what I think its sort of main epic pretension is and why I kind of bought that, and then maybe that'll lead us to talking about the music. Great. So I, I feel like the epic pretension at the heart of this is what's kind of gotten at in that one speech in the middle that Anne Hathaway gives about how love is a force that draws people and things together across time and space without really being understood, which is similar to gravity being a force that is not really understood that can transcend time and space. And I felt like there was this equation being made and that things in this movie were being kind of held together by this invented concept of love gravity. And I, uh, I dug love gravity. I was willing to, like, go along with that. Mm. Yeah, I'm not against love gravity. I just didn't feel like this movie led me to believing in it. It kind of talked about it, and I was waiting to feel why that was true, and I never really got there. Well, I remember coming out of the movie the first time I saw it, kind of being impressed with that concept and willing to have that be sort of my takeaway. And so I was definitely watching it again this time and listening to the score again this time, sort of through that lens with that in mind. And... I don't know. I feel like if you do that, uh, you know, there's something to it. I felt like, yeah, Zimmer is kind of charting the love gravity here. Or at least he's trying to. I mean, my biggest critique, and I bring it up because the thing you just said, I feel like, all right, well, that already kind of answers this. My biggest critique is that where in other conversations I've said that the thing the score is bringing is that it really maps out the concepts, the idea space of the movie. It shows us we have this subject matter and this subject matter and they do or don't interrelate. This score, I feel, is not very well differentiated in terms of what material goes with what themes, characters, situations. It's just kind of put on for local superficial effects, which are sometimes very strong, but then he uses the same piece again three scenes later for something that really just doesn't have anything to do with it and it gives a sameness to everything and as soon as you said well he's kind of mapping the love gravity i thought oh well maybe if i'd been thinking of that as the central concept some of these uh, uses of the material might have seemed more meaningful to me but my overall impression was zimmer gave nolan a bunch of pieces to kind of not temp the score with but like some pieces of music written before the movie was edited yeah and then nolan kind of put them back and forth across the movie and it feels like that it didn't feel like the score was with the characters or the story it was just with the overall vibe of this movie well that's typical of a lot of the collaborations that nolan and zimmer have had over the years they've worked together a lot you know that's kind of a criticism that i have in fact had about Zimmer's scores for Nolan movies in the past, like I remember in the Batman movies, which, you know, I enjoyed a lot about that trilogy of movies, but I do feel like when I was in the middle of the last one, I was kind of a little bit tired of the strings just going dunga 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 throughout the whole thing, just going, this is so intense, it's so intense, it's still intense, it's so intense. And that intensity was just like wallpapered and kind of undifferentiated about what the actual action on the screen was. It was just this constant bed of intensity. I mean, I'm not sure whether that was a similar working process where Zimmer kind of churned out these tracks and Nolan just laid them on top of 
edited stuff rather than it being scored to picture after the fact. But it felt that way in those movies. I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt a little bit more in this movie because the ambition of the movie seemed so vast you know, literally the biggest and most vast stakes imaginable to minds of humans, you know, making these kinds of big overarching statements and enormous, you know, like playing things from a perspective that uh, you can't even see one thing from the other, this enormous high perspective. I was willing to go along with it in this case. That in itself is not really what my criticism just now was. My criticism (laughs) is essentially that at the end of this movie, when Matthew McConaughey uses the power... Wait, wait. Yeah. Before you say exactly what happens at the end of the movie, maybe we should just rearticulate here, since this is now the most recent movie that we're devoting a full episode to, that, yeah, we're going to say exactly what happens at the end of this movie. Yeah, this is a spoiler show. You're listening to a spoiler podcast. You asked for it, and it's coming to you. We're not setting out to spoil it, but uh, <laughs> we're setting out to talk about it, so you got to know, you got to be prepared with us saying the things that happen in it. All right, here's the spoiler break. Okay, at the end of this movie, when Matthew McConaughey uses the power of love to fly through the fifth dimension to save the human race. Great, right? All of this is one little girl's bedroom. Every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. It's pretty much the same as music you heard at the beginning of the movie when he was driving in his truck and he saw something he thought he could get parts from. <laughs> it's an Indian Air Force drone. Solar cells can power an entire farm. Take the wheel, Tom. It's like exactly the same music. Those scenes don't have anything to do with each other. The amount of emotion we're feeling in those scenes really ought not to be the same amount. We shouldn't be thinking about the same things. To me, that's a problem of proportion. I guess if you're working between, you know, eight and a half and ten on your scale, scale, on the scale scale, (laughs) it limits what you can do. And yeah, it gives a sameness that doesn't help you in. Didn't help me in. Look, I hear that. Uh, Yeah, there definitely is a sameness throughout the movie. Everything is just kind of undifferentiated because I like space stuff and because I like love gravity. I kind of read into it that this was an intentional choice because part of the science fiction conceit of the movie is that, you know, time can be represented spatially and all of time is happening all the time. Everything has already happened and is currently already happening now and it all connects with each other. And so that like cross galactic sameness was doing something for me. Yeah, and I'm not going to deny that. It is true that it had an effect of making everything feel slightly unreal, and then the movie has something to say about why it has made everything feel slightly unreal. It was like a dream. You yeah, know? it was dream. From the outset, it's like a dream. It starts with him having a dream. Yeah, the way that the music was sort of playing through things and not acknowledging local moments in what we were watching, uh, yeah, gave me this feeling like, well, it's all the same action. It's all already happened. It's just all there already. Yeah. 
Do you want me to give some examples of yeah, like playing through things? So here's one early in the movie where weird stuff happens in the young Murph's bedroom and she's able to decode these coded messages being apparently left there. And they turn into coordinates and Matthew McConaughey goes, drives in his truck to where the coordinates say to go to. Murph? And then surprise, even though he told her not to, Murph is hiding under some blankets in the seat of the truck. Ah! Hey! What are you doing? Oh, you think this is funny? That moment of throwing off the blankets. Oh, look, she's there. And then it scares him and he swerves the truck on the side of the road. And that is all just like totally ignored by the music. And it really gave me this sense of she was always there. You know, this local moment that surprises his character. It was already written. It was already part of the fabric of the universe. And I felt like the music was just playing the fabric of the universe. And then to jump to the end of the movie where Murphy's now grown up to be Jessica Chastain and she solves the uh, gravity equation using the data that he transmits to her back through the five-dimensional love gravity. She goes and throws her papers in celebration off of a balcony and says, Eureka, like this is the payoff. This is the happy ending, essentially, of the movie. And again, the music is just following its rhythm. It's just following its patterns. And it doesn't touch that you know, seemingly important moment. Again, it made me feel like it's already there. It's just all already there because it's all tesseracted around you. Yeah, I mean, talk about what I said last time, that the myth is that there's an underlying order yeah. to everything into which sure. it fits. And you just said it in lovely words. You said it's playing the fabric of the universe. Yes, a lot of the music in this movie is doing that, and a lot of the movie wants to be watched that way. Mm -hmm. But not all of it does, and not all, <laughs> sure. not all the music does, not all the movie does, and it sort of willy-nilly goes in and out of that way of seeing things. That was the complaint. That's fair, and I'm not deaf to those critiques because... Yeah, I recognize that in saying, yeah, it's representing this. I'm being intentionally charitable. No, but I, I'm with you. I am with you in that. And I was thinking, you know, he uses these kind of patterns, patterns, patterns. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's closer to true minimalism. We used the word minimalism briefly on the last episode to say that Thomas Newman isn't really writing minimalism. This is a lot closer to it. And it yeah. really sounds like the classic works by the famous people called minimalists, Philip Glass, famously and Steve Reich in a couple places, but mostly sounds like Philip Glass. And sure. the famous use of it that this sounds like is in this movie, Kayanaskazi, where it's like the patterns of the city and the patterns of human civilization and the patterns of destruction. And it's just, you know, play a little Philip Glass here. <laughs> This famously accompanies just a montage representing the order of things or the disorder of things or, you know, for you to try to contemplate the fabric of the universe. Right. Because the classic use of these arpeggios going over and over and over. And he calls it up here for a sci-fi movie about time and the universe being so vast and looping and wormholed and circular that these characters are sort of just being drawn through it by bigger forces. That that makes sense. Uh, and then there's this other stuff in there. And, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, no, go ahead. Explain your... Uh... Well, okay. So the story that, you know, if you read the liner notes, you read interviews about this, the story that Nolan and Zimmer both tell is that... They got their story straight, you mean? I think that it's probably a true story. That's <laughs> yeah, my impression. Is. I'm not a detective, no, sure but true. that's what I took away. That Nolan, before production had begun, way, way early on, I think he hadn't even written the script yet. Yeah, it was just an idea. Yeah. He said to Zimmer, can I have one day of work from you? I'm going to give you one page of a story concept, and I want you to write some music to go with that. Whatever comes to you. Yeah, whatever this inspires you, what sound it creates in your head. I don't think the text of what he actually wrote has been shown to the public, but they both say it was about a father and a son. It was about the relationship between a father and a son. No one said that, you know, it's a father and a daughter in the movie, but he had it be a father and a son in this letter that he gave to Zimmer because Zimmer himself has a son, so he wanted it to be resonant with a parental relationship that Zimmer could feel. Yeah, he wanted to get something personal and emotional out of him relating right. to this two-person intimate family love relationship. Right. And Zimmer wrote, and I believe one of the tracks we have is the actual demo he wrote that day. Yeah, I think so. You can hear that it's a demo written in a couple hours. It's thin, and, and he wrote this thing. He called it Day One because it's just day one of thinking about such a thing. Right, and they said, they discussed, shall we do a day two, shall we do a day three? But the end of the story is that Nolan heard this demo and he said, that's perfect, that's great, now I have the soul of my movie, and then told Zimmer that this had been written actually for a vast sci-fi time travel mind-bender epic about other galaxies, but that this was going to be the theme of it because that's the concept, is that it's about all of space, but it's actually about love. I think this demo, I think you actually hear it in the movie. I think it's what plays for the end credits as soon as the credits roll at the end of the movie. Yeah, at the end of the movie you hear a cleaned up and uh, slightly <laughs> better thought through version of it. Yeah. This thing that he came up with is not functioning like Philip Glass, the cosmos is bigger than any of us fabric of the universe music. This is, you know, on assignment about the fears and hopes and tension, whatever, of parenting, whatever it was that came to his heart as he was thinking about this. There's something, like, studious about it, right? Doesn't it feel, like, very measured and aspirational? Well, because it's got that repeated note over and over. Yeah, exactly. It just keeps going, dung, dung, dung. Yeah, it feels somehow like an attempt, like, you know, repeated attempts or learning something, training, uh, mental training, I don't know. Well... I uncharitably going to say it <laughs> sounds to me like doodling to try to get at a mood when you're only working for a couple hours and you're just trying to whip up a demo <laughs> and not really trying to come up with material that's going to be the basis for, you know, a two and a half hour movie. You're just doing the one thing. The guy gave this thing, you know, it probably said something like the father and the son, you know, don't always see eye to eye and then they part and uh, regret that whatever. It sounds like doodling. It sounds like improvising, trying to kind of get a mood out of the piano. This theme, and it is a theme, but when I watched the movie, I did not pick up on it. And when I went back to understand what the score was doing, oh, sure, it's the main theme of the movie. It's like one note, and then the note above it, real slow, and then they stir around stepwise. Yeah, I think in a previous episode, uh, the word noodly was applied. Yeah, you brought that out of our college. Uh, that was a counterpoint <laughs> sin to just move around stepwise. Right. 
I don't think it's a sin in music. I think it's fine to do that. But what it is not is it is not a strong choice. It is not a strongly marked Hmm. piece of material to build something on for the audience to notice, to draw anything. Remember when we were talking about King Kong and it was pointed out that King Kong's theme was da, 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 which is such a basic molecule of musical grammar that it was really hard to tell the theme from the chaff. And (laughs) here... When this score wants to be about something other than the scope of the universe, the intimate feelings, the love half of the love-gravity equation, sounds like an improvisation, sounds like a kind of, mm-hmm. haven't quite found the actual theme yet, but uh, I kind of know that it's on a minor chord. And uh, <laughs> I think that Nolan probably did that to help himself not get too stuck in sci-fi land and also maybe to help Zimmer go against some of his more grandiose instincts. Yeah, well, they did intentionally decide to go against the grain of what they had been doing for the previous 10 years. They got rid of all of these heavy action drums and the ostinato strings that had characterized the Batman stuff. They wanted a different sound and he hadn't used any woodwinds really for that previous decade's work of work so now he brought in woodwinds and then nolan actually proposed the idea indeed to use a pipe organ which became the heart of the score and the real distinctive sound about it but yeah they did try to strike out in a new direction which i admire but i think you're right though to wonder if this little exercise this kind of uh, fake-out, imperfect information experiment that Nolan pulled on Zimmer. You know, just write something personal. Haha, turns out it's really the theme for an enormous space movie. It kind of makes a good story, but I'm not certain that it's a great idea. Because of what you just said, yeah, that it kind of leaves Zimmer in the lurch. Yeah, I, it ties his hands. I wonder if, privately, he might have thought... Well, gee, if you told me this is what you were going to do with it, I would have done something that that I could have done something with. So here, to give him credit, he does some smart things, you know, given this kind of, you know, that show where they have to make a meal with, you know, like half a breath mint right. and two pieces of spaghetti. <laughs> given that he now has this theme, which basically consists of one, two, one, two, one, two. Right. <laughs> On the same chord. Yeah. Not changing the harmony. I, I guess it's one, two, three. He does a smart thing with it, which is that he adds this kind of baroque, somewhat classical moving line. He doubles the tempo and has these eighth notes fitting in inside it. Yeah. And then he can play that thing alone, and then he can build it up, which is smart, and it adds a different kind of interest to it. It gives some flexibility to where that thing goes. And he also comes up with a kind of a variation on it. I mean, I think of it as a variation on it. This dun-dun, uh, dun-dun. Yeah, that's definitely based off of the same. You would hear those as the same material at heart, right? Yeah. yeah. And those, you know, those give slightly different flavor, certainly different color to that material. But it still feels like the thing with Max Steiner. Like, I couldn't tell watching the movie that something thematic was happening versus Mm. just a kind of water treading. That's the risk when you write minimalism is you don't want to create the sense that you're waiting 
You want to create the sense that you have a very important process, a natural process that's taking place, or some kind of unstoppable, you know, the tides, the waves. In this movie, there's waves. <laughs> the minimalist repetition is happening for some compelling, urgent reason. and It sure felt unstoppable in some spots, right? Yeah, but there's other spots where... What's the place where it just goes on and on and on? Um, <laughs> the one place where that happens? You'll have to be more specific. <laughs> well, so there you go. <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> I think that the thing I'm thinking of is yet a different idea, the kind of TikTok idea that he has. Sort of... Kind of fuzzy pulsing, Yeah, I think of it. Which, again, is well-colored. Yeah, well, color is, I think, an undeniable achievement in what's happening here, but go on. Yeah, one of the places where he's using that, it covers uh, like five minutes of... It's longer than that, and there's many stretches that are longer than that of different stuff. Long, long tracks that just keep going over many cuts and through many scenes and through many sequences and setups and... Monotony is a totally fair criticism to level at this. I'm not really leveling, I mean, not as a whole, because I really do feel that some of this minimalist approach is effective. My criticism is of some moments when I felt like he's definitely going to go until they get to their next mark, you know? And obviously, like, a lot of this comes down to Christopher Nolan and not Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer said, here's your building blocks, and then Nolan and the music editor work it out. Uh, Maybe we should say the name of the music editor. I saw in some places where he's co-credited with Zimmer as a composer, which makes a certain sense. Hmm. Alex Gibson. So you just said something about the instrumental colors being an achievement. Let's talk more about that. Yeah, so whatever degree of intentionality you want to attribute to the kind of limited nature of the basic musical material here, what he undeniably does do is develop that out into color in pretty interesting ways. And yeah key among them is the use of this pipe organ. He went to London and they found this organ at a place called, I think, Temple Church in London. And uh, they had the actual music director of the church, the organist who really plays that organ for the church services, perform the score. Set up a remote recording studio there to record him playing it because the organist is sort of the only person who has full command of such a complex thing. very first thought I had about the organ at the very beginning of the movie is that, oh, it sounds like the uh, organ that you hear at the beginning of 2001, a movie that looms large over this movie, at the end of the famous Alsace Brock Zarathustra opening that Kubrick used at the beginning of 2001. There's an organ in that texture. And then when the chord finally dies, you hear the reverberating organ as the last thing. Oh, I think that was absolutely... Like a reference, almost. Yeah, I think it was absolutely intentionally referenced, the kind of organ chord that swells, yeah, right in the beginning of the movie when Matthew McConaughey goes over and looks out the window. is definitely intentional, you know, so that's like a footnote to that. Yeah, so right at the beginning, they kind of do their source sighting. Yeah. And it does seem appropriate. It has this kind of pedigree association within the genre. And yeah, it's full of these wonderful sounds that you really rarely hear in a movie. Yeah. 
I am not generally like a huge Hans Zimmer enthusiast in part because I feel like he has colors he goes back to too much. He kind of sticks to the same palette a lot. Like the digga 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 that stuff. Yeah, and like yeah. <laughs> he, uh, fair. I fair. sometimes think of him as composing with, you know, that sound in the general MIDI specification called orchestra hit. Yeah. Down, bow, bow. It's the sound from uh, the beginning of Bad by Michael Jackson. <laughs> I, I also kind of thought of it as like the, um, oh no, it's time to answer the question in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of a cheesy sound. My point is just it's called orchestra hit as though orchestra is an instrument that just sounds a certain way. And sometimes I feel like Hans Zimmer, I mean, this is very unfair to him, but that there's a kind of attraction to that there's a way you use the orchestra and it involves a huge bass drum and the strings chomping. And is there any way we can beef this up? You know, he likes to compose with an anvil. I thought that in this score, he really reveals... A flair for other colors. Yeah. A lot of them were really enjoyable for me. So, like I said, it was Nolan's idea initially. He kind of offhandedly suggested, hey, how about a pipe organ in the middle of some other note that they were writing to each other? And as soon as Zimmer saw that, his imagination took off about what he could do with it and how it really was the right medium for doing this kind of uh, vast thing that he wanted to do. And he said that the big pipes on the organ look like the afterburners on a rocket ship. That kind of visual metaphor was meaningful mm-hmm. to him. And yeah, like I said, the pedigree of an organ, Zimmer points out that there were, you know, a good couple hundred years in human history when the pipe organ was pretty much the most complicated machine that humans had built. It does kind of represent the grandiosity of human achievement and marshalling the forces of nature. You know, the wind and you have to have an enormous building built around it. It really is this kind of enormous endeavor that does seem to kind of match the scale of a, you know, space mission, the kind of amount of human effort and time and expertise that goes into it. You know, when I've seen pictures of Hans Zimmer at his console, his composing console, he's very much a, ooh, I've got all these synths, I've got all these samples, I built this thing at my home studio. And that's very much like an organ setup. It's like you've got all the different manuals and the pedals and all the stops you can pull to change settings. It really is like a synthesizer set up in the pre-synthesizer era. Yeah, it is an analog synthesizer. And yeah, and you pull out the these little pistons to change what pipes all of this bellowed air is getting blown through. And maybe it's uh, banal to point out that those are called stops and the expression to pull out all of the stops refers to doing all the stuff you can do with a pipe organ. And he does a lot of the stuff, he does pretty much all the stuff you can do with a pipe organ in this score. You know, there's thousands probably of different pipes and they all have different colors and you can put the air through them in so many different ways and it can kind of mimic a lot of other instruments of the orchestra. You can get kind of a woodwind sound out of it. You can get kind of a string pad sound out of it. You can get kind of a choir sound out of it. And he uses all these different ways of playing the organ and in fact does combine them with those other orchestral instruments and with his synthesized instruments. And so he really is molding the color in, I think, really interesting ways. I love 
love the cues in this that are true organ solos. Uh, I think the best one is the pivotal cue when Matthew McConaughey has missed out on 23 years because he was on the fast time planet and he comes back and says... Slow time planet. Slow time planet, right. <laughs> he, he was in the gravitational field of a black hole. Yeah. You want to get into special relativity? I can do it. So, John, is it reasonable <laughs> that they just parked the ship a little ways away. Oh, no, that is unreasonable. <laughs> and that guy aged at exactly the same speed as Earth? No, it's not reasonable. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's also not reasonable that they could have descended into and then blasted off back out of a gravitational field strong enough to produce that much time dilation in that little lander craft. Like, you would need the biggest rocket in the universe to escape from gravity that would cause such time dilation. I think that that amount of time dilation also means that they are subject to completely deadly amounts of gravity, that they are essentially in the black hole. Oh. I mean, according to my very brief Googling, <laughs> what's going on in Interstellar is that Yeah, reasonable? I mean, like... It- <laughs> There's a part in the movie where he actually goes into the crosses the event horizon. Yeah, he goes inside a black hole, and basically right. it consists of him going, Oh, oh this is somewhat painful. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what would actually happen? The actual technical term for what happens to stuff as it is approaching and going into a black hole. Spaghettification or something, right? Yeah, he would get spaghettified, which means the difference in gravity between his toes and his head is so vast that it would be stretched out into an infinite spaghetti strand. Uh, That doesn't happen in the movie. Yeah, I think that there would have been more smithereens in this movie if they had really done their science right. (laughs) I I gotta say, I had heard about this like, oh, it's the most rigorous and scientific sci-fi movie ever made. And I was like, I don't know, this seems like a Star Trek episode where they like go into a black <laughs> hole and there turns out to be a bookcase there. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that much more science-y than anything else. Some of it is rigorous. When they want to be rigorous about it, they get some stuff right. Anyway, they go to the slow time planet, mm-hmm. and then he comes back, and his crewmate is 23 years older and not thrilled. <laughs> says, you have, uh, you got mail. And he says, okay, yeah. you know, play messages from the beginning, and then, you know, has to crushingly experience missing out on his children's entire lives and he's a man outside time and he cries finding out that his son turned out to be uh, Casey Affleck and we watch this <laughs> you gotta admit that Timothy Chalamet looks an awful lot like Casey Affleck it turns out yeah great casting and they found a little girl who you could think probably grows up to be Jessica Chastain Great. Anyway, this scene of him taking in the mind-bending emotional dislocation of this event is a true organ solo. Just what a great choice. I can't think of another movie that has a cue that's an organ solo in it. Truly, I don't think I've ever heard that in a movie before. I mean, yet in old movies, trying to evoke silent era schlock, you might play organ. Right, when it's not trying to sound like a Dracula or something. That's right, yeah. In this kind of quasi-religious, quasi-minimalist place, I thought, this is uh, this is cool. This is cool sound and a cool effect. I agree. I really liked that cue, and it totally worked for me, totally connected with the extreme emotional turmoil that he's going through. I really liked that, but uh, since he brought it up, I gotta ask you, what about the end of that cue? Yeah, I don't know why they did that. Why'd they do that? Ugh, why'd they in an interview, I saw Zimmer asked about that, and he said, oh yeah, that's a very important cutoff. He says in that interview, you think it's score, and it turns out to be source music, which is absolutely the effect that it has, because what we're talking about is that the music 
abruptly cuts off when a certain message that he's watching ends, when the video stops, the music abruptly stops with it, which immediately tells you, oh, the music was part of the video that we were watching. You know, that was music that he was hearing. That's what it suggests. Well, I mean, since that clearly isn't the case, right. it doesn't tell you that. It just kind of throws you. It definitely throws you. I guess is the effect such to throw you. I think it threw me too far. This was definitely a bump that I didn't have a charitable explanation for. I got something out of it. It's like, oh, he's weeping. He's churned up by this. And then for it to cut off, now he's just left with the reality of that. It's real, and now uh, what's he going to do next now that this has actually happened? That was in that second what I felt. Stopping suddenly is something that music can totally do. The offense in this case was that not only does the note stop suddenly, the playback stops suddenly. Like, you can hear the ring out, the kind of decaying of the sound get cut off in addition to the note getting cut off. And I don't know why they needed to do that. He could have just stopped playing the notes. Yeah, I think it was probably supposed to amplify the disorienting feeling of being deep in some kind of emotional right. thing and then being like, whoa, and now I have to deal with um, the physical space I'm in. I mean, in. I, that must be the answer. That's the charitable answer, but then he pulls <laughs> the same trick again other times. So I think a deeper answer is that Christopher Nolan is enamored of various tricks he can pull, and that was one of them. Yeah. Another color that he comes up with that I really liked was in the scene right after that when we're introduced to the present day now that 23 years have passed and Jessica Chastain is his adult daughter and we see her life and she's walking around at the uh, NASA center where she works and he's got this kind of ringing upper register piano chordal version of that day one theme. And that, too, was a sound that I thought, I, I didn't expect to hear that. I don't hear that in a lot of movies. It didn't mm -hmm. mean anything in particular, but it gave a sense of newness to that moment. You know, when, at the end of last episode, I said, uh, these kind of movies, they kind of do one thing sometimes. And um, <laughs> I was really wrong about that. This movie didn't do just one thing. Okay, good. It did a few things. I, you know, obviously I'm criticizing, but it wasn't monotonous as sound. I guess my fear with things that want to be epic is that they will, like I said, go for the anvil approach. And just that this, yeah, you know, pull different registrations on that organ at different times. Sometimes it's the soft, fuzzy organ, and sometimes it's the very yeah. bright, bell-like organ. And, and he uses his whole ensemble that way, and I enjoyed that about it. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was really well considered in that dimension. I really liked the moment when they are coming out of hypersleep or whatever they call it in this movie and they've reached Saturn, which was the end of their first phase of their yeah. journey. And we see beautiful special effect of Saturn and the vastness of space. And we hear just a piano solo in a cathedral or in a, you know, reverb is turned up. I think that's Hans Zimmer himself playing the piano, and it sounds like a Schubert leader or something. Yeah, he plays chords he doesn't use at any other time in the movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, it has the effect of like you walked into the concert hall and there's no one there and someone's checking out the piano and what a cool choice for... It resonates so nicely, yeah, with vastness and with like just enormous silent forms. Yeah, the scale, you know, this is Mm -hmm. the biggest thing you can possibly put in a movie. It's all of Saturn. I mean, that's the biggest thing I've ever put in a movie. I don't know. Well, you have seen Jupiter in movies, so Jupiter is bigger than Saturn. I guess. What movie have I seen Jupiter in? I guess 2001. All right. I guess there's bigger things in 2000. Well, there's a black hole in this movie later which presumably is bigger than Saturn. So anyway, I thought that that choice both was a beautiful choice in itself and was admirable because they could have gone other ways with... uh, I mean, let's talk about the fact that a lot of choices in this movie are to be as loud as possible. Yeah, that is true. And this is something that was a common criticism that, yeah, they commit so strongly to just playing the heck out of this organ that people said that it drowned out some of the lines of dialogue. Like, it really gets pretty loud. So I'm glad we've saved it for later in the conversation. What what was that? (laughs) I'm glad we saved it for... I can't hear you. What are you saying? Yeah. Come on, Charles. Okay, is it... Yes. Can I talk now, Chris? (laughs) Yes, okay, good. I'm glad we uh, hadn't gotten to it until now. I think my favorite piece of scoring in the movie and a piece of thematic material that is probably what if Nolan hadn't pulled that trick on him what he would have <laughs> used as his main theme this stay theme. Yeah, 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 you're right. Which is actually a good theme for this sort of a movie. Probably could it have really stood is. to use it more. You know, actually, it's the very first thing you hear at the beginning of the movie, if you've mm-hmm. got the sound turned up high enough. And as soon as I heard that... He plays... Oh, the mode changed now. It's minor. As soon yeah, as I heard that, I thought, right. oh, maybe this will be interesting. I, you know, I, <laughs> I went in kind of skeptical. And as soon as I heard the willingness to go straight from major to minor like that, I thought, oh, that's, um, that's already bold. And um, maybe this will be cool. So the main showcase for that theme is this scene when McConaughey is leaving his daughter a third of the way into the movie or a quarter of the way into the movie. He's going to go into space indefinitely and his daughter is reasonably pissed at him for making this decision kind of out of nowhere and not listening to her say that the ghosts in the wall are telling him not to being a pretty difficult father who's about to abandon her you have no idea when you're coming back no idea oh they are having a tense scene and there's this theme building underneath it and I think this is so beautifully done it just is going to do its thing yeah hey I love you forever you hear me I love you forever such a beautiful way of getting at the feeling of tragedy its tempo cares not for what words they are saying to each other. Exactly. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, and that's what I took away from it, too, that it's just going to keep rolling and rolling and growing and growing. And then this same sequence, this is an example of the kind of time compression editing where this immediately overlaps and is kind of cross-cut with him, in fact, in the rocket. Well, first he's driving away from the house. Okay, well, wait, this is why I brought it up. Can we just talk about that before we hear it? 
What I was going to say is, oh, okay. he builds it up. Yeah. They're fighting. Probably He's safe. leaving. You feel the tragedy building. And I, I thought, you got me, Zimmer. This was well done. And now you're going to pay it off. And you got me. This is emotional. And when you see him driving away hey, and Zimmer pulls out all the stops, I had to chuckle because, like, pulling out all the stops isn't good enough for him. He has to be louder than you can handle. It just has to explode your eardrums. <laughs> Not a rocket sound effect. That's on the soundtrack. It's like a musical idea that noise enters it because it can't handle how loud it is. <laughs> it was funny to me because he basically has license to be as loud as he wants. The scene merits it because it has to kind of put this bookmark there for you to remember two hours later this is the moment that he's returning to in time and it's supposed to tear your heart this is supposed to be the most poignant thing in the movie now he can be as loud as he wants and he still managed to go what felt like overboard to me (laughs) all right well i was gonna praise that the way it meshes with the editing I think is really effective because, you know, him in her bedroom and her pleading with him to stay and then him driving away from the house to the launch site and then him actually in the rocket being launched. This is all kind of cut together as one action and all of these steps are compressed into one experience. The music just, like you said, plays continuously does not acknowledge these individual moments or these individual actions it's all just one continuity and again it gave me this feeling of this is all one action it was all there it's happening now it will happen then it has always happened and yeah playing it so strongly for this moment that indeed is going to happen again and have always been happening crucially later in the movie was powerful. Yeah, is it too loud? Maybe it's too loud. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I accept the roller coaster excitement of things being really loud. I think that Zimmer and Nolan both. Yeah, they have a flair for this kind of showmanship. I don't deny it. Or they feel like they do. You know, I read that they, they, they were confronted with the criticism. Why is this so loud? And Zimmer said, like, yeah, well, you know, we, uh, we went to an actual movie theater a bunch of weeks in a row and listened to the mix on big movie theater speakers and blew out the speakers and uh, you know just trying to check to see you know well can we really do this is this loud enough can we make it louder is it uh, yeah that's what they wanted to do is to be really loud I don't know it's, I think uh, the impulse to do that it's a little <laughs> bit insecure like okay don't you trust that this is going to have an effect don't you trust that the notes are enough don't yeah, you trust I hear that. that the scene is enough that the script is enough yeah. that everything is happening enough already and like why would you add yeah it's like it wants to drop an anvil on your head just to make sure just to make sure we really got you there and you know people are definitely into that that's what people mean when they say epic a lot is overkill (laughs) you usually you can replace the one word with the other it's like oh it's it's totally epic which means i was kind of taken aback by how much more there was than there needed to be and maybe it's just a taste thing that that takes me out sometimes instead of overwhelming me in yeah it's a risk it's definitely a calculated risk they're taking i mean you know so when the uh, characters are blown away by this mile high tidal wave that's about to kill them oh on the slow planet you mean on the slow planet yeah the music is you know this tense 
and then it has a little accelerando going into the when the wave appears, yeah. which we talked about how they do that in Dunkirk to great effect throughout the movie, and here they do it in that one moment. And then when they show the wave, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is what, you know, orchestral players know as the Zimmer low brass sound. Like, he really pioneered the use of just the lowest super low brass as you can come up with and as many of them as you can find. Like, for Inception, right, he just, like, got the mega super contra tubas to just blah. And that became very trendy. A lot of movies tried to go for that. Yeah, <laughs> all right. So, like, I get rolling your eyes at that a little bit, sure. Yeah, I think my thing with Zimmer, I forget how I phrased it earlier, but the composing with, you know, the side of a building, <laughs> it feels... Well, in that movie, there are sides of buildings that go up and down, so... In Inception. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It feels like it doesn't trust that it's done until it has piled on more and more. Should we pile on more? But well, we probably should pile on some more, right? It, more is better, right? <laughs> Overkill kind of says to me, like... Maybe no part of this actually matters, but we packed in enough that in total it matters, right? You definitely cannot stand up in the face of this wave. It's trying to do to us what it does to Wes Bentley. <laughs> this is the second in our Wes Bentley series, we should point out. Yeah, it occurred to me just a few weeks ago we were watching Wes Bentley in American Beauty in 1999, and then all of a sudden, here we are seeing him uh, 15 years later. Yeah. You know, it's like we were close to a black hole and just suddenly emerged to find that he had aged a bunch. It is like that. <laughs> The other kind of material that we haven't talked about is this major chord that he holds for a long, long time. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the spooky music for the ghost in the wall, and they also play it for the spaceship flying around. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think of that as kind of the Lydian-driven piece. Yeah, because he keeps touching that sharp four. It starts off with that. That's like the yeah. inciting moment of the melody is that just, here's the sharp four over a major triad pad that's shimmering and it's just shimmering there and Yeah, and that shimmer is very cared for. It's yeah, got it some uh, mysterious sounds in it. I don't know exactly which ones are in there, but in the bonus feature on the Blu-ray, he showed a bunch of techniques that he had thrown into the mix that were similar to stuff we talked about with Planet of the Apes, where you know they're just blowing through their mouthpieces, or yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. making clicking noises with the keys on the clarinets or whatever. Yeah, I read that he actually had this instruction, this idea that he played his synthesizer sounds, his like you know computer instruments for the orchestra, and said, "How would you?" you make your instrument sound like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He wanted to, you know, turn the usual way of doing things, which is, you know, you're trying to get computer sounds to sound like real instruments. He wanted to go the other way around to get the real instruments to sound like synthesizers. And then just like fade back and forth between them. He mixes these bizarre instrumental effects with the actual synthesized sounds and kind of morphs them back and forth. Yeah, I do think it's admirable how little overtly synthesized sound there is in this. Yeah. Because he gets most of those effects out of the uh, organ. Yeah, that's true. Which has, you know, did we say religious connotation, classical connotation? I mean, these connotations are a huge part of what that brings to it. Feels like it has a history and a real value instead of, you know, a sound you whip up on your synthesizer that the ear can tell is synthetic. 
Anyway, this chord, yes, it has a sharp four in it. But then he also puts these violins above it. And they glide up slowly. They move around chromatically, and it vaguely evokes kind of Wagner or Mahler, a kind of Mm -hmm. old orchestra, high romantic angst. I thought that was a cool thing to have in the mix, but that was one in particular where I didn't know why it was where it was. I thought at first that was the ghost music, that was the magic bookcase music, but then he uses it for the spaceship, so... I think one other interesting place where we, I think we hear that same material again, is on Matt Damon's planet. Did you know Matt Damon was going to be in this movie? Surprise. I didn't know until he woke up out of the goop, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I liked that part of the movie. Yeah, it was good. It was a little like a little Twilight Zone episode with him. Yeah, you're right. They set him up. You know, they keep talking about him the whole movie long, that he was the best of us and he led this whole expedition. And then they wind up at his planet where he is in hibernation and it's like a harsh ice planet. And it turns out, Spoiler alert, that he had been faking his data and is now the bad guy and is going to have to maroon Matthew McConaughey here so that he can hijack the spaceship and go back to Earth. Because he went loneliness crazy, because he, you know, knowing that he was going to die there alone overwhelmed him and the survival instinct made him do things he wouldn't otherwise have done. I thought that was a, you know, oh, that's a cool movie. I could watch a movie about that. Yeah, well, it was a cool movie. I thought it was a cool (laughs) movie, Andy. (laughs) Okay, so this is like in the lead up to the reveal of him doing bad guy stuff is when he and Matthew McConaughey are like exploring down through these ice crevasses. He starts to give this little speech about, yeah, the survival instinct. You have attachments. And even without a family, I can promise you that that yearning to be with other people is powerful. We start to hear that, that same floaty, spacey theme. What makes us human is not to be taken lightly. I will say that... This sequence was pretty much exhibit A for the thing I said at the beginning about my squinting and being like, what are you getting at? I I truly did not know what was being gotten at by this musical choice. I actually thought this was part of a kind of interesting progression that I want to like back up and talk through and then you can tell me that I'm inventing it. Okay. So the key mechanism here in the movie is that there is a wormhole which enables them to jump through the universe into a galaxy far, far away where there are perhaps some habitable planets. Going through this wormhole is like a key part of the story. As the ship is approaching the wormhole to go into it, we hear this music. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. They get closer and closer, and they dive into it, and then they're in the wormhole, and we see all kinds of weirdo special effects, And but the music stops. We're left only with the sound effects. The ship is kind of rattling, and they're talking and stuff. And then they get through to the other side. We're here. 
And now music starts up again. It seemed to me that the music was respecting some sort of division there. You know, it wasn't going to play through this hole in the universe. It was going to mark the different sides of it. From that point forward, I think they actually are pretty careful about when and whether the music can bridge that divide because the movie cuts back and forth a bunch between stuff that's happening in this other galaxy and stuff that's happening on Earth in our galaxy. There are some notable spots where the music will not cross that divide. Like we see Jessica Chastain returns to her old childhood house. Cuts from that to a scene on the spaceship between Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey. Amelia, I'm sorry. You were just being objective. There's this like sharp cutoff that pretty starkly delineates. So now we're in this universe and now we're in this other universe. And then sure enough, it cuts back from the scene through the wormhole back to Earth. And now the music kind of starts up again, just as suddenly. He's been asking for you since he came to. We were trying to reach you. That seemed intentional to me. That seemed like it was calling my attention to this division. And then, now in this sequence, they do cross that divide. Now the music does start to unite these scenes happening all the way across the universe from each other, where Matthew McConaughey is fighting with Matt Damon on this ice planet in their spacesuits. Don't judge me, Cooper. You were never tested like I was. Simultaneously with that, we're cutting back and forth to Jessica Chastain and Topher Grayson. You tried your best, Mark. A whole bunch of stuff is happening and it's kind of swirling around and it's all being stirred together now by this music, where before the music was choosing not to intermingle this way. The way I read it is that here is the moment when the love gravity stretches through the universe and actually draws Matthew McConaughey and Jessica Chastain together, that the father and daughter bond is reaching across time and space and having this gravitational pull on each other and it's represented by the music coming in here in the moment when he's cracked his helmet and he's suffocating on the ground like that's the moment you're talking about yeah well that's the sequence that i'm talking about because they're both in peril both of their storylines are at this important turning point and the music in conjunction with the editing is stepping in to say yeah but remember this connection between them that will pull them together that will line up their destinies you know it's suffused the universe from one to the other. So that move is so big. He's playing such a big, high perspective that, like, he needs time to ramp up to it. So what I was going to say is that this ramping up to it scene where we're starting to suspect that Matt Damon may be no good, that starts out, yeah, with this floaty thing that had been associated with the ghost and with the weird coded messages and then with spaceships. To me, it said, yeah, here comes the love gravity. Here comes the connection. Like, it really has nothing to do with the scene that's happening. He is playing such a far-removed idea, and he's just letting it go, letting it play. You know, you got to be in the mood for it, I guess. What I'm hearing is that it worked for you. Yeah, it did. And you're articulating something that I recognize as an effect that movies have sometimes. Something I thought of through that sequence, it reminded me of 
of Terrence Malick movies, possibly because Jessica Chastain was in Tree of Life that looked kind of like that, and The Burning Farm looked like whatever the one is where the farm burns, States of Heaven. And Terrence Malick movies are all like, I can cut whatever I want next to whatever (laughs) I want as long as either narration or music or both or something is continuous and you are going to philosophize your way across these cuts. And yeah, I'm truly very susceptible to that. I think that you can definitely create transcendent and poetic effects that way. Nonetheless, during that scene, I really did feel like I can see that you're pouring glue all over the movie, but (laughs) I just don't know where. And that it's this particular glue, which, you know, you've opened this bottle before. I recognize this music. It just didn't create that effect for me that if it had... Yeah, I'd probably say exactly the things you're saying. That you know what it's about. It's about some uh, interdimensional force that links these things, and it's hard to articulate. Yeah, I love it when movies do that. It just didn't seem. All right. I mean, look, the fact that you called it glue, I feel like, is close enough. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely pouring glue, and it's a very long-setting glue. It needs a <laughs> lot of open time. You need to <laughs> to set up the uh, enclosure and pour the epoxy and just let it sit and stew. That's what I felt was happening here. And you're really not supposed to, like, sit near that and breathe those fumes while that's happening, right, John? You're supposed to step away and do something else. It depends. There's different epoxies you can use. Just be careful out there. You know, Topher Grace would tell you to get out of there right now. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, he's not wrong. Yeah. All right, Andy. Well, speaking of glue, is there is there anything else you want to stick in here before we wrap it up? Um... Nope. Or maybe it's time for the uh, new recurring end segment of our show you proposed last time, our closing statements. My closing statement is, I thought this was a good score and was better than I expected from (laughs) Hans Zimmer for this type of movie. I thought I was going to get something much more blunt force. And Mm -hmm. it had nuance to it, at least in sound. And it had a couple of really compelling strong choices for the departure scene for that vision of saturn moment and several things like that that really worked for me and i enjoyed them but overall i got the impression it really wanted me to be entranced by it and i wasn't entranced i was just kind of taking it one thing at a time i never lost sight of the fact that they were reusing material he was going around in circles the script doesn't make sense and i can't help but feel that some of that is an undesirable effect of their working methods and that if it had been scored more traditionally like written and then directed and edited and then scored to that Mm -hmm. the score could have served it with more care for the journey of the movie rather than just the overall fact of the movie. Okay, you know, I don't really disagree with that overall take. Like I said, I really dug the movie, dug the ambition of the stakes of the story. I dug the science-y technical stuff and the special effects and all of that. And I dug the score. You know, like I said, the score really did give me this sense of universality that felt like it was important to the movie, and I admire it for reaching so far. 
it's a real big reach to say, well, this movie is about stuff that is so vast, so cosmic, that none of the regular scoring moves are enough for it. None of them apply. I have to think of a whole different way of approaching this. I have to use instruments that would never otherwise be used. I have to have the music be in a relationship to the movie that is, you know, in a different dimension. Like, the score to this movie is kind of attached to its movie in the fifth dimension. <laughs> and I uh, I felt like that was giving me something. But I can't deny, you know, the, the kind of things that make you roll your eyes about Hans Zimmer from time to time... Uh, do, you know, have the same effect on me. And I think it's fair to point out the difference in my experience listening to this music on its own to how I felt about it while I was watching the movie, which it should be that way. You know, he is really taking to heart his job as a storyteller, and he's subordinating himself to the picture and the story in a way that's necessary and admirable. But yeah, it comes up with music that is, uh, you know, a little monotonous to listen to on its own, and maybe he could have come up with more creative things if he wasn't trying so hard to think out of the box. You know, I think thinking in the box here, like you said, perhaps had more to offer to him than he thought. Well, yeah, what I meant by that more was just the impression that he wrote some pieces and then they got kind of tracked and edited in. Mm -hmm. As for what dimension it's connected to the movie, sometimes the music was really trying to get right in there in a very traditional way. Like, look at how big that wave is. Oh, it's really big and here's some big music for it. <laughs> I just felt like it was sort of in an in-betweeny place. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you found things to like about the texture of this music and that you were impressed with uh, colors that Zimmer found. I think this is my, you know, I haven't exhaustively gone through Hans Zimmer's voluminous output, but uh, I think this is probably my favorite of his scores that I've heard. It felt the least weighed down by... Uh, gravity. Gravity. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I like it too. I like it definitely better than other Zimmer scores. You know, Zimmer has this kind of reputation in Hollywood as being the technology guy, being the churning along action drum wallpaper guy, and for that matter, for having an enormous studio full of, you know, assistants and assistants to the assistants. And sometimes it can be a little bit opaque who is actually doing what. I, I totally believe that he actually did all of this music. Yeah, so do I. I think this was a uh, premium, yeah. you know, you got the full Zimmer on this one. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Another thing that he's known for is really treating his clients well, having a very solicitous kind of service attitude, you know, and ingratiating himself into the creative process in a way that really flatters uh, his directors. I don't mean that uh, cynically. I, I mean, he really takes to heart his job as a collaborator and as a servicer of other people's ideas. You know, that's obviously clear about his relationship with Nolan. And here, I wanted to read this quote from this interview that we've been citing. I think is kind of interesting. They were talking about the organ, and the interviewer says, you know, that these immense instruments that got built, you know, had to have backing from enormous resources, like from the church. And Zimmer's response is, absolutely, welcome to the Church of Hollywood. Our times have changed dramatically, whereby you don't get the church or royal houses to go and commission art anymore. Everybody loves to go on about how Hollywood is repeating itself, how it's just some factory. But I'm really happy that this factory is one of the few places, to me the last place on earth, that commissions orchestral music and live musicians on a daily basis. I mean, there are so many productions being done, and nobody bats an eyelid when you say, I want to go and write something for a symphony orchestra or a pipe organ. 
And I just want to say uh, amen to that. Yeah. You know? Truly. Yeah. I totally agree with him. It's awesome that there is any place where this stuff gets produced. Yeah. The Church of Hollywood, you know, the patronage of the you know movie productions for the art that people like Zimmer can do. I'm thankful for it. Yeah. And I'm criticizing him and saying I'm, a, I'm sort of I'm not a super fan, but I respect his work. Yeah. He does good work that serves his movies. Mm-hmm. And also the reputation that he just does action drums is not fair. He has scored in many different genres and um, many different styles. They, they don't all feel like Christopher Nolan movies. Yeah, and he's a pro. Yeah, I liked where he went with this. You know what? I gotta say, I am glad that you liked this movie as much as you did because I liked this movie as much as I did. And I still do. <laughs> so there. Great. What's up next? Well, we are now gonna do the next drawing. Yeah. Here's some music from Interstellar that corresponds to the tension <laughs> of this dramatic moment. Yeah, you know, as I was going through this music, I was like, oh, we're going to have some good things to choose from (laughs) for our uh, attention anticipation drawing music. We're throwing open the door here to a slightly curated subset of the more and more expansive full list. Mm -hmm. Expansive. It's getting pretty expansive, and there's some stuff on there that maybe we would be a little taken aback to have to do just on our next episode (laughs) before we've gone a little deeper into this. So we're taking from a substantial but slightly curated bucket at this point. Yeah, that's right. But still a wide swath of different things that could come up and surprise us, and we don't know what it's going to be. Right. We really don't. I think I'm going to do the drawing here. All right. All right. I've got the bucket here. I've got the ball machine. Rattling the balls around there. Our favorite sound effect, yeah. Oh, also, don't forget to mention that you still keep fielding suggestions from our listeners and throwing them into the bucket. So there's a bunch of those in here, too. Is it this one? Is it that one? Is it the one that that guy said? Could be. There they go. The balls are all rolling around past my hand. It's reaching in as though to interdimensionally handshake with somebody passing through a wormhole. Uh-huh. Our future self is pushing on the strings of gravity yeah. to force you to select. To force me to select. Let's see. Mm-hmm. It is... The Man with the Golden Arm Ooh. by Elmer Bernstein. Yeah, jazz score, I believe, is what that's famous for. Cool. Yeah, that's right. 1955. So this is going to be Elmer's third time on this show. I don't know this movie, but always happy to have Elmer pay a visit. I think it's Frank Sinatra as a heroin addict. Yeah. Is that right? I think that's right. I don't think I've ever seen it, but it's on all of the movie score lists as an important movie score. Yeah, this is 1955. So coming close on the heels of A Streetcar Named Desire in terms of being a jazz-driven score. And I don't really feel like I'm that familiar with Elmer Bernstein's take on that kind of material. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Yeah, this should be fun. Cool. Thanks, Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) Okay, you got through another episode of listening to us. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, really thanks for doing that. If you liked what you just did, then (laughs) say so on iTunes. If you didn't, fine, fine, that's all right. You don't have to like it. You don't have to listen to this if you don't like it. But if you do like it, come back next time when we talk about Man with the Golden Arm. And if you can't wait until then and have something you have to say about anything, really, but Interstellar would be a great choice, or suggestions for movies, you can tweet at uh, us <laughs> on Twitter at Score Settlers. Uh, and until then, we'll keep the aisle seat open. What did Cisco and Eber oh, used to God. say? Oh, God. We're that back what they used to, to this say? now. We're back to the uh, sign-off discussion now. Last time we just said goodbye, which works for me. I know. It worked, right? It was like we hung up the phone, yeah. We just stopped talking, and then people had to deal with it. Uh, all right, well, see ya. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back. <laughs>